You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. The human body is an incredible testimony to God's unbelievable precision. Each and every one of us are just walking miracles with how our bodies function every single day, including the things that we don't really recognize, the things that happen within us on a second-by-second basis. It's just awe-inspiring. But also, our bodies are kind of weird and sometimes mysterious, and sometimes act in a way that we don't fully understand, and sometimes it'd be nice if they came with a little bit of an instruction manual. Because it doesn't matter how old you get or how confident you feel in your body and the way that things work, once you feel like you get to know yourself a little bit and understand how your body works, sure enough, there are things that are just going to take you by surprise. And one of the things that our body does that is kind of weird and sometimes hard to understand. And one of the things that can actually really be a difficult process to overcome is how certain things are signaled inside of our body. For instance, hunger. We really feel like we understand what hunger feels like. And if you're fasting during the season of Lent, if you've chosen to fast during these 40 days, and maybe you're fasting from some type of food or fasting from the entirety of food or spending a day in fasting, however you may structure that, you might really know what it feels like to be hungry. But then sometimes we feel hungry, and so we start looking for something to eat. And maybe you grab a little snack out of the pantry, maybe you grab a pack of crackers or some chips or something, and you eat that, and it doesn't seem to make a dent in the hunger. And so you think, okay, well, maybe I was just hungry for something else. Maybe I was hungry for something a little more healthy. So maybe you go into the kitchen and you grab a piece of fruit and you eat the piece of fruit and you're still not any less hungry. And so you think, okay, maybe I just haven't eaten enough. And so you go and you eat a full meal and you just keep eating. And yet for some reason, you never really feel satisfied. And sometimes that happens is because our brain will send signals to the rest of our body that feels like hunger, but actually could be thirst. Maybe you're just thirsty and dehydrated, but sometimes our body processes that like hunger. Or maybe you're stressed. Maybe you've gone through seasons where you're just eating and you can't feel satisfied, and it's because your body has this stress response, and it starts to send all of these signals that it's hungry when actually your body just needs to chill out and rest because you're overworked and stressed and anxious and all these kind of things. And so when those things happen, when we get our signals crossed, When we think that we're craving food, when actually we're either craving something like water or something like rest, we can find ourselves eating and eating and eating and never being satisfied. And that's a really frustrating feeling. And satisfaction, especially in our physical lives, can be an elusive thing. And some of these cravings like hunger and thirst or restlessness can lead to a dissatisfaction that can make people act, I don't know, kind of unbecoming. I mean, we've taken the word hungry and merged it with anger because it's so common for people to be hungry and angry at the same time that we now call it being hangry. And when it comes to our own spiritual lives, there is an inherent restlessness All of us are hungry. 
all of us find ourselves in seasons of dissatisfaction and want to try to fill that, but sometimes we can't really identify the thing that we're hungry for or the thing that we're longing for, and so we try to fill our lives with all these different things that are never able to satisfy, and we find ourselves angry, disillusioned, frustrated, and restless. And so how do we deal with this hunger that all of us feel? And where is it that we can find satisfaction? I think the teacher in Ecclesiastes gives us a window into that, and then we'll call in an assist from the Apostle Paul later on in the sermon. But we're going to look at a pretty wide range of text today, and so I just want to read a small piece of that, and then we'll kind of cover the rest of the ground as we go along. But I want to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, you know how, how hungry that we are. And throughout the course of, of humanity, ever since the garden, people have been longing to meet that hunger and find that satisfaction anywhere else but you. But God, we know how this sermon ends. We know where this passage of Scripture leads. We know, at least in our minds, that the only way that the people of God can be satisfied in this life is by looking to Christ, looking to what He's done, being restored to the joy of our salvation and living and walking in the amazing grace that we've been given. So Father, help us as we now look at this passage of Scripture where the teacher of Ecclesiastes just says so explicitly what he's been hinting at for the first four chapters. Help us to confront those places of idolatry and self-righteousness and self-satisfaction in our lives. And help us to look past the things of this world and all that it can offer and look directly to you to find hope, peace, and satisfaction. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in the passage that we're starting to look at today, in verse 8, the writer of Ecclesiastes says this, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And I love that the writer of Ecclesiastes starts here by telling us not to be amazed when we see this kind of injustice from a place of higher power all the way down. 
Because no matter how you've lived your life, no matter what your situation has been, in all of our lives, there's a time when we look around and we realize that whether it's people in our immediate circles or way high up on the list, that there are people in power, people of authority, who don't really care so much about us or about people that are experiencing oppression or difficulty or hardship, that there are people in this world that care only about filling their storehouses and only making for themselves a name. We see here this picture of a king who's committed only to cultivated fields. The only thing that he cares about is the expanse of his nation, the expanse of his power, the expanse of his wealth. He doesn't care about the people in his kingdom. He doesn't even really seem to care about his own happiness. And I think that's an amazing thing here in this passage, is that this king that embodies the fullness of someone just chasing after their own passions or their own desires is not even really worried about his own temporary happiness, but chasing after this kind of a goal that a storehouse filled with wealth is more important than anything else going on in his life. But as we've seen over and over and over again through this book, there's a problem with that kind of a mentality. And in verses 10 through 12, a passage that we sat in just a moment ago, he said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with it, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And then I love how he phrases this in verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In Deuteronomy, when the people of God are told to bind Scripture on their doorpost, for those of us living in a modern world, this might be one of those passages that we need to bind on our doorpost. This might be one of those things that we need a constant reminder of. And I know it's not as cute and fun as some of the other verses that we like to write on note cards and write on our mirrors and fill our walls with. But I think especially in the time in which we live, this passage of Scripture reminds us of the futility of the kind of things that we pursue. And as time goes on, as life continues forward, and as things become more accessible, this kind of mentality that the more I have, the happier I'll be is only going to grow and grow and grow. But here, the teacher in Ecclesiastes shows us that when goods increase, the only thing that increases is the person who eats them. They don't get full. They just become better eaters. And if we just want to look at the purely biological sense of this, you probably know what we're talking about here. I I certainly know this feeling, right? If you're of a certain age, then you might be able to remember a marketing campaign by the Lay's Potato Chip Corporation. I don't know if that's the official, is it Frito Lay's? I don't know what their like conglomerate name is, but you know what I'm talking about. The Lay's Chips, the whole marketing campaign was, bet you can't eat just one, right? And they are accurate. Because no one in the history of humankind has thought, hmm, I'm hungry. I would like a chip. And walks to the pantry, opens a bag of chip, and especially when you open them for the first time and they're just so crisp because all the preservatives haven't leaked out yet and they just smell so good. And you open up and you take one bite and you eat it and you think, wow, what a delightful chip. My craving is satisfied. I'll move on with my day. No, you think you're right. I can't eat one. 
bag. You just eat, and, eat, and, eat, and then you can keep going because these chips are designed, literally, they are designed to make you want more. Lay's could make that kind of a statement because they knew here is a salty, greasy, delicious treat that is going to make you feel thirsty when you eat it. And as we've already talked about, thirst can make you think that you're hungry, and so you're just going to keep eating and eating and eating. But what happens with something like a potato chip is it doesn't really satisfy And we build this really incredible tolerance to just being able to consume. And there's almost no limit to that, especially when it's junk food, especially when it's empty calories. We can just keep eating and eating and become really good at it. And there's a spiritual equivalent to this as well. Because at first we might start off thinking that I'm just missing something in my life. That I feel dissatisfied because I just don't have this one particular thing. If I just maybe got into this school, then I would find a sense of purpose. I would find a sense of, of, of walking in the right path in my life. And this, this piece of my life, this college education, this one particular school, this is what's going to help me on my way. If I just have this, then I'll be complete. If I just have this job, If this job is what I can have in my life, it's what I want, it's what I've been training for, if I can just get this job with this company, then I'll be complete. If I can just get this person to go on a date with me or to say yes when I ask them to marry me, if I can just have this kind of relationship or this many kids, if I can just have this amount of money or this amount in retirement, and we just put in one little thing into that blank, right? Because I'm just missing something. There's just one thing missing from my life, and I can just, if I can just have that one chip, if I can just taste that one thing, then I'll be satisfied. But look at what the teacher says here. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? You see, when you fill in that blank, whatever it may be in your life, the difficult thing is that's not really what you're hungry for. And so that blank is just going to open up another blank. And then maybe fill in that blank, but it's just going to open another one, and you don't become any more satisfied. You just become a better eater. You just become a better goal setter. I am a, I have a very collective personality. I don't know if that's a word. I don't know if that's a phrase, but I like to collect things. And over the course of my life, I have had an absurd amount of collections. I actually probably could have a collection of collections with all the things that I've tried to collect. And very rarely do you start out, especially if you're kind of wired like me, thinking, oh, I'm going to start a collection. It starts out that you might just be walking through a store. You might just be walking outside and find a pretty rock. And you think, oh, my goodness, I love this rock. This is a great rock. This is a beautiful rock. And then you take it home and maybe you set it up on your mantle. And then you're walking around again. and You say, oh, my goodness, there's another pretty rock. And so now you have two pretty rocks. And you think, what would be better here if I have two pretty rocks, a third rock? And you can find all of these sort of things. And so you can fill in the blank with whatever you might collect or have collected in the past. Again, I have lots of different things. And the way that it always happens is, sure enough, I find one thing that I And then I find out there's a variation of it, and I want that variation, I want that variation, I want that variation. And pretty quickly, it goes from I like this thing to I don't have this one. And collecting really quickly can turn into just a passion and a desire because you like the item to all of a sudden looking at your shelves full of the collection and not seeing all of the pieces, but only seeing the spaces that are missing. And you start saying, okay, I've just got to fill this gap now. And I've just got to fill this gap. I've just got to fill this gap. And we do that, spiritually speaking. 
looking at all of these things that we can collect, we start looking at our shelves and noticing the gaps, noticing the things that are missing in our lives instead of paying attention to the things that God has provided. In verse 12, he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And when we're constantly trying to fill these gaps and figure out the thing that's going to bring me to the point where I finally find satisfaction, there is a desperate restlessness to this way of living. And I love that he uses this idea of sleep, because if you've ever had restless legs while you're trying to go to sleep, it is an unbelievably miserable feeling, right? You just take that decongestant one too many times, and all of a sudden your body is just wired, but your brain, it just really wants to go to sleep, but there's nothing you can do about it. And that paints such a good picture of this spiritual restlessness that can come when we just think that we're missing something that will bring completeness to our lives. And that restlessness leads to a miserable existence. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, there are people in the world that have achieved all the things that they could possibly imagine achieving and still find themselves miserable because that's not what they were hungry for. The teacher continues saying, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, and much vexation and sickness and anger. And so what we see here is this picture of someone with a gluttonous appetite for more, living every day of his life with no desire other than just to obtain more and more and more, to make his wealth grow, to make his power grow, to make all of his possessions grow. He does all of this work to build for himself a kingdom, and then he dies. And he goes out of the world the same way he came into it, with nothing. He's fought so hard to hold on to all these things, and yet he's found no satisfaction. He's only known restlessness. He's only known misery. And then he dies, and none of it goes with him anyway. And this is how someone with a gluttonous appetite for wealth and power can spiritually starve, because all of it is just empty. The teacher goes on to continue that same pattern in chapter 6. If we look through verses 1 through 9, we see the same idea of just trying to find more and more and more, except it goes beyond wealth and power because you may look at this passage and you may say, well, good news, (laughs) I'm broke. (laughs) And I got no perspectives to be able to fill in those blanks. Wealth and power is just something that now that I've reached this age is not something that I think is really a possibility. And so I'm good. (laughs) 
But here in chapter 6, he goes on talking about having all of these children. Man fathers a hundred children and may live many years, and his days may be many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial. I say a stillborn child is better than he. And so we can fill in the blank with whatever it is that we want, because chances are it's probably not wealth and power for most of us. But it could be if my family just looks this way. If I just have this number of children, if I'm able to be this kind of father, if I'm able to hold these things together, if I'm able to have this kind of house or this kind of retirement or we're able to be comfortable in all of these kind of things, then I'll be satisfied. But it never will. And so how do we fight against that hunger that all of us experience? And the chances are that each and every one of us, as we think about the things that make us spiritually hungry, it's probably something different. All of us probably have a different item with which we can fill in that blank. But how do we collectively fight against this in our own lives? Well, he goes into it. And I think the opposite of this, if we're just going to keep talking about food. A couple weeks ago, we went, we had our first men's breakfast. It was really awesome. We were eating some good food. But this weird thing happens, especially when groups of people get together and eat a meal together, is you start talking about other meals. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a particularly American thing, but more often than not, I'm talking about food when I'm eating food. And so we were sitting around the table and we were talking about the best breakfast that we could think of. What's the best breakfast that you've ever had? And we were eating a really good breakfast because Kelly's is delicious. But as I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Cornet tell us about being at a Scottish bed and breakfast and giving, having himself fed this beautiful meal made by a professional Scottish chef, all of a sudden I was feeling a little inadequate with my biscuit and country ham and eggs. But have you ever had that kind of a meal, right? That kind of meal that you just remember, the one that you talk about, where it just hits all the right buttons. You just find yourself perfectly satisfied. That is a really beautiful experience. When you can eat something that hits all the different points, all the cravings seem to be satisfied. You just get just enough to where you're full and you're satisfied, but you're not sluggish and groggy. It gives you this beautiful burst of serotonin. It gives you this beautiful burst of energy. It helps you get through the rest of your day. And then you usually just sleep better at night. It's awesome. And that's the complete opposite to everything that we've already talked about. And in chapter 7, the teacher contradicts this wasted life that can't be satisfied with a real satisfactory meal. In chapter 7, he says a good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death than the day of birth, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you should ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, 
and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And then he dials us in a little bit here. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And on the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And so for the teacher, he turns everything on its head. And so in comparison to this life that's lived, just trying to grab all of these good things and stockpile them and use them as a way to build ourselves up, he says, no, it would be better just to live your life in mourning and live your life in sadness and to go through these things than to hope that you're going to find satisfaction in the stuff that you've been piling up and find only that it would let you down. But then he directs our hearts and attention to the real heart of the matter, saying, no, no, you need to consider the work of God. Because for the teacher, satisfaction doesn't come in seeking after the gift, but in the God who gives it. And when the toil is the gift, or the gift itself is our hope, when we try to manufacture our satisfaction, it's always going to let us down and always going to leave us longing for more. But when we recognize that God has given us each day, each moment, each thing that we have as a gift and a provision for the day, then we're able to look at that thing and say, no, this is good. This is what I need in the here and now. But our problem is, is we don't really know what we need. We think we do. I'm a grown man now, and I've learned the things that I need, and I learn how I should operate and how I should live and the things that should be important to me. But the reality is, compared to God, we are still very much just children. More than that, just infants compared to God. And children don't know what they need. They think they do. They really think they do. They like to vocalize how often, how much they think they do. But what children want to do and what children think they need is they think that they need the opportunity to just eat and eat and eat until they throw up and pass out, which is not good for them. Children think that they need to take any shiny metal object that they can find and shove it into electrical outlets, which is not good for them. Children think that what they need is to be able to run free in traffic, and that is not good for them. And so as parents, it's our job to say, no, that is not what you need. What you need is not to be run over. What you need is not to be electrocuted. What you need is not to eat until you pass out. And in the same way, there are things that we come to God and we say, this is what I need. And God says, no, that is not what you need. Jesus says that our Father, who is a good Father, who is a perfect Father, knows what we need more than we do. He knows the things that will satisfy us more than we think that we could possibly understand. And so satisfaction comes when we learn to trust God with our diet. And no, that is not a segue into me writing some sort of Jesus cookbook. Although you can find him, Body by God was a book that was really popular for a while. It was really strange because there's not a diet plan in here. But there is a spiritual diet plan. There is a spiritual guide to how we can find that kind of salvation and that kind of satisfaction. And we need to trust God with that. And it's something that the Apostle Paul knew very well. And this is a passage that I've already referenced as we've kind of gone through some of these similar ideas through the book of Ecclesiastes. But I'm going to reference it again because I think that Philippians especially, the book of Philippians is a Christian answer 
to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in Ecclesiastes, you see the teacher looking at all the things in life, the good things and the bad, and finding absolutely no meaning, no joy, no hope, no satisfaction. And yet in the book of Philippians, you see someone in the Apostle Paul who had achieved everything the teacher had achieved and then left it behind for the sake of Jesus, who is sitting in a Roman prison waiting to die, writing to a church that is under persecution in the worst situation you could possibly imagine. Imagine finding yourselves in that apostle is writing to that church and telling them to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. He's looking at them, telling them that they can find peace in the midst of that situation and reminding them that even their bad moments have a deep and profound meaning in God's story. And he begins to wrap that up in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. And I know I've referenced this, but let's just read it in full here. Because Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content, satisfied, fulfilled. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, as we approach as we approach this passage in Ecclesiastes, it can be really easy to look and say, okay, I just need to reject wealth. I need to reject power. I need to reject fame. I need to reject any sort of contentment, any sort of peace. I just need to live a really hard life. And we glamorize sometimes this idea of a forced martyrdom, right? The only way to really follow God is just by being destitute. But Paul gives us the real answer here. The real answer here is not just trading all happy moments for just bitterness and anger and weeping, but Paul says, no, we need to learn to be content in any circumstances in which we find ourselves. I love how he uses the phrase, I have learned the secret of facing. This idea that he is facing plenty and facing hunger. That he's facing abundance and that he's facing having nothing. That he's facing health and he's facing sickness. Because in all of these things, Paul knows there's going to be a battle and there's going to be a struggle. If I have a lot, then it's going to be easy to not find my contentment in Jesus. If I have nothing, then I'm going to be looking for contentment anywhere but Jesus. But Paul says, no, whether I have a lot or I have nothing, I find my contentment in Christ so that whatever I have, I can do all of these things through Christ. It's not because I have a lot that enables me to be a good minister. It's not because I've suffered much that enables me to be a missionary for the gospel, but he says it's Jesus that does all of those things. And so whether today he chooses to give me abundance or tomorrow he chooses to give me famine, with either of those things, I can honor Christ, glorify Christ, serve Christ, and also find contentment in Christ. Paul gave up a comfortable but hungry life as he was trying to climb the ladder of religiosity. 
And he gave that up for a life that did, at times, come with much greater trials, but also a much greater sense of satisfaction. And this is the calling that we have as well. To do what the, only, the old hymn says, that whatever my lot, you've taught me to say that it is well with my soul. To recognize that whatever we have from day to day is a provision from God. Not so that we can find our joy or our happiness or our satisfaction in that thing, but so that we can use that thing for the glory of God, for the building up of the saints in the church, and for the ministry of the gospel, seeing men and women come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so we need to, again, take evaluation of our lives and ask, what hungers do I have that leave me feeling unsatisfied? What are the things that I think that if I just fill in the blank with this, then all of a sudden I'll find hope or I'll find peace or I'll find that satisfaction that I've been looking for? Where are the places where I'm seeing the gaps instead of the places where God has brought fulfillment? And instead of evaluating those empty spaces, we need to learn to count our blessings in the good times and bad, to see how God has provided for our needs and given us what we need for each day so that we can do the work that we're called to do and then find our true hope and satisfaction in Christ. And when we do that, we're able to show the world around us a radical peace that can only come from being truly satisfied in Jesus.